1: I'm Sterling Fox in for Roy Green, and here's what's on the podcast. August 31st is the last day for insurance companies to cancel their coverage of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. So will they? We'll ask a pipeline opponent. We'll have an update on Hurricane Dorian from Daytona Beach, Florida. The Canadian Taxpayers Federation wants to know why government employees seem to take nearly twice the sick time as private sector workers do. And the president... President of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business says payroll taxes are prohibiting Canadian small businesses from growing. These stories and many more on the podcast for the Roy Green Show. Enjoy. Today, the 31st of August, is the last day for insurance coverage of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. There will have to be new uh, contractual arrangements to continue coverage into September and beyond. So should or will the insurance company, Zurich being one of the insuring giants in question, continue to cover the Trans Mountain Pipeline? There are a considerable number of individuals, some 50,000 people have signed a petition uh, urging Zurich and the other insurers to abandon their coverage of the trans Mountain pipeline. One of the one of the names on the petition is Sven Big Mr. Big is uh, in joining us from Vancouver where he is a, a climate and energy campaigner at stand.earth Sven big welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. Uh, You're welcome. So, uh, talk a little bit about the coverage. Let's let's deal with the the issue, the specific issue in question, which is Zurich. And are there other major players in the insurance industry that are the focus of your petition?
2: Well, we sent uh, letters and then uh, our petition to 27 insurance companies uh, that either are currently insuring the Trans Mountain pipeline, have insured it in the past, or we have some reason to believe that they might be considering signing on this time around. We've heard back from about half of those companies. Um, A lot of them it's an insurance industry policy, not to comment on individual policies or or projects. Okay. Um, But a number of them have signaled to us that they are no longer interested in ensuring this project or tar sands projects in general and that there is a growing concern amongst the industry about the effects of climate change on their bottom line.
1: So Now, those insurance companies that, as you just mentioned, indicated they're not particularly interested at all in insuring these uh, energy sector projects, have they in in the past done so, or have they just kept the whole thing at arm's length as a matter of policy?
2: Uh, Well, in the past, most of these companies have insured uh, big fossil fuel projects, We've seen a growing kind of awareness in the insurance industry that higher claims from things like floods and forest fires are driving up their costs and a threat to their long-term business model. So uh, companies have started first with coal and now with tar sands oil, moving away from some of the projects that are, are most connected to uh, an increase in climate emissions
1: so is your understanding as uh, did I, I get it right in terms of my understanding that the insurance coverage um, of a large portion of this expires at midnight tonight and uh, there I'm sure given the size and the nature of the project there are automatic renewals in place that will kick in or are there
0: well I
2: um Through the National Energy Board, we got our hands on the insurance certificates uh, for this project. All pipelines over 250,000 barrels a day have to file those. Um, And we've been putting pressure on those companies. The policy is up tonight at midnight. Um, We won't know until Trans Mountain files a new certificate whether or not they got enough companies to cover them and whether or not they... um, companies like Zurich have decided to renew their policies.
1: Now, what do you understand the regulations to be regarding any company that wants to go forward with a pipeline project and necessary insurance coverage?
2: Well, the National Energy Board sets a level for insurance uh, that that projects like this need to have and requires them to file that. So, they have either the option of going out there Finding a private company to insure them or self insuring and putting the money up in the form of uh, a bond.
1: Okay, now the uh, owner, technically the owners of the Trans Mountain Pipeline currently um, uh, are the government of Canada. Uh, has the government had anything to say about this whole business of renewing its uh, coverage? Uh,
2: the government hasn't uh, responded to our campaign, um, but. We, this is one of the angles that uh, environmental groups are taking more and more with fossil fuel projects. So I imagine they're going to have to respond in the future.
1: And ultimately, uh, you're hopeful, I gather. Um, how long, by the way, how long did it take you to assemble 50,000 signatures on this petition?
2: Uh, we launched our petition uh, uh, early August. So it's, it's been about 30 days now.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, the the net result of the petition uh, on uh, on a really good day spend would be what?
2: Um, I, we weren't tracking day by day, but uh, a lot of those uh, signatures came in the first couple of days. Of, no, no, of I mean, campaign. I mean
1: the alt, the, oh. the net effect of the of oh. the. So the, you've got this a huge p- p- petition, fifty thousand plus signatures. Mm-hmm. You drop it on somebody's desk, and they go, Oh, okay, and they do something. What would that be in your most desirable uh, outcome?
2: Well, we are trying to uh, get companies like Zurich and other companies to adopt policies that that say basically they won't in ensure these kind of projects going forward. So we've asked for them in particular to drop the uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline, but more broadly to come up with a company policy that says these kinds of of projects are a threat to the climate and therefore our our business, and we won't
1: do business with them any longer. So in other words, this is uh, another angle, if you will, to try and stop the pipeline.
2: Absolutely. If uh, they can't find insurance and they're going to need more insurance once the expansion project is up and running, um, then then they can move forward.
1: How likely is it, do you think, given the costs and the investment already made in this project, that an insurer won't be found?
0: Well,
2: uh, and that's tough to say, um, but we're going to continue to work on this angle um, we think that the insurance industry is is one of the financial sectors that's most awake to the climate threat and most likely to act. So we're going to keep up the pressure. And, you know, we have had good responses from a number of the companies that we reached out to. We think we're going to see more tar sands policies as a result of this work. And that's a big step in the right direction for
1: for the insurance industry as a whole. Oh, I want to open up my phone lines here, too, as we continue our conversation. If you'd like to join in, it's one 800 263 2428 Again, 1-800-263-2428. As you listen to this particular angle on uh, shutting down the Trans Mountain Pipeline, uh, 50,000 people signing a petition in a matter of a few weeks. I would assume that was up on your website, stand.earth, and so signatures came in from all over the country? That's right. Okay. Uh, Any particular part of the country where it seemed to be more uh, represented than others, Ben?
2: I mean, obviously, folks in British Columbia are, are very concerned about this project. There's local impacts. Uh, We know the project is also very unpopular in Quebec. Um, So that's where we've seen the strongest responses.
1: What about the political parties, the other players on the field? Obviously, the Liberal government, it owns the pipeline. It bought the Blinken thing. So clearly they have every intention, or so they are saying, of completing it. What about the other players? We know the Green Party is clearly opposed to it. The NDP, not real thrilled either. What do the Conservatives have to say about this?
2: Well, the Conservatives uh, are obviously a pro-Industry Energy Party being based in Alberta, um, but they have some real concerns about the amount of taxpayers' money that's gone into the project, and they've raised those in the House and other places. Uh, it's going to be over $10 billion before of taxpayers' money before a drop of oil moves through this pipeline, and I think taxpayers should be asking the question whether or not they're ever going to see that money back.
1: Well, that's a fair question to ask, too. Uh, Sven, we've got a few callers on the line. Just to remind us, though, when you you said you sent these uh, these letters requesting uh, a, a disconnect, if you will, from uh, insuring the Trans Mountain Pipeline, I'm, I'm trying to remember how many companies said uh, okay and how many companies uh, said uh, no thanks.
2: Well, we sent 27 letters to CEOs, we've heard back from about 12 um, of those two companies made it very clear that they're not going forward with the project. Another couple are in talks with us and our, our coalition partners about uh, a new tar sands policy, and nobody really answered that they are uh, going to ensure the project at this point. There's-
1: mm-hmm. Okay, uh, let's go to the phones because uh, w- this is definitely going to provoke some some, uh, some feedback as we start in Calgary. Shelby, uh, hello. Good afternoon.
3: Hi, how are you?
1: I'm all right, thanks. What do you think of all Good. of this?
3: Um, I think it's ridiculous. Um, I'm an indigenous person. I work in the oil and gas. And I'm all for transitioning. I don't have a problem but there's no plan in place for the transition. These guys are just going, bang, okay, it's done, now what? And everything mm-hmm. they utilize from their phones, their computers, everything has to do with petroleum products. What's his answer for that? And why aren't they going after the, the United States or Saudi Arabia? Why are they working so hard on Canada when we have that absolute record of the cleanest, the cleanest oil and uh, the best regulations around the world. What's the problem here?
1: All right, a couple of good questions, Shelby, for you, Sven. Uh, number one being, uh, why pick on Canada rather than uh, some other place like the next-door neighbors of Saudi Arabia? And, uh, and most importantly, I think, especially for a, a, a person who works in the energy sector, as Shelby clearly does, the transition. You can't just say, stop and watch Hundreds of thousands of people, their lives just melt away in front of their eyes. What about a transition program or policy?
2: Sure. Well, let's start there. Um, we're not saying shut down the industry tomorrow. It wouldn't be possible even if, if uh, that was our policy. What we're saying is that the oil sands in particular has grown large enough um, that we need to, if we're going to save the climate, we've got... 11 years left according to the United Nations to to drastically reduce our emissions, we can't grow the tar sands anymore. So uh, that gives us the time to work with stakeholders like uh, people working in uh, the oil sands and First Nations to come up with solutions to help uh, retrain those folks to get them into other jobs. There's a lot of renewable infrastructure that needs to get built to make that transaction uh, happen and there's going to be a lot of work created doing that
3: but we still need that pipeline in order to transition out like in your, and if you're not allowing them to insure you're opening up a huge liability who's going to take care of that liability the company well,
2: over- can't go forward without insurance it's not legally allowed to um, okay. We don't need this pipeline, it's only going to increase the amount of tar sand oil that's being extracted in Alberta, and that's going to put us in a place where we can't solve the climate crisis.
1: So I want to talk to okay. Alan next, and he's he's in the same, same neighborhood, Alan is joining us also from Calgary. Jump in here, Alan, please.
4: Yeah, well, I'm very much along the same lines as Shelby, uh, I guess the first question for Sven is, how many cars do you have in your own driveway? How many cars are in the driveway of those 50,000 people who petitioned? Probably 100,000 cars, including well, you. I don't own, own a car, so I'll stop you there, and I don't drive. So the other 50,000, and most of them, those cars I'm don't run sure. on anything else. And in the transition side of things, the entire electrical uh, subsystem in North America could not handle changing the entire system over to electric cars. Your, every last bit of our electrical system would crash if you tried to do that. What we have now, so where is all the energy going to come from to rebuild that electrical system? It's not going to come from electrical. It has to come from fossil fuels. Unfortunately, the way the world system is set up to operate, it operates based on fossil fuels right now. We do have to transition off of it, but if you're going to have a transition period, you should be working harder than ever to make sure the oil that is being used is the most ethical oil produced in the world so why keep blocking that when you just let the rest go the way it goes it's okay for the the, the guys that uh, trash entire areas white indigenous people out in order to get at the oil and yet you go after the, the most ethical oil alan yeah. you've,
1: you've asked a really good question fan go ahead
4: Sure. So
2: oil sands oil has some of the highest carbon emissions for barrel of oil produced in the world. Uh, It's one of the only oil fields expanding that has high carbon inputs. And we have over a trillion liters of uh, tar sands tailings that are untreated sitting in northern Alberta in tailing spots. So I would argue that it is one of actually the lowest uh, forms of oil that we have in the world that we can use, not not one of the most ethical. This uh, campaign is all about making sure that uh, the insurance industry understands the risks of this project and are uh, making uh, good decisions based on all the information. I think some of them have to already decided not to go forward with this project because the risks are simply too high, both to Canadians and uh, the climate.
1: All right, Sven, thank you very much. Stand.Earth is your website, correct? That's right. Okay, Stand.Earth. The month of August has brought, well, the beginning of hurricane season to the next-door neighbors, particularly, of course, in the southern states. Florida being particularly concerned about Hurricane Dorian, which is uh, lashing through the Caribbean, apparently giving the Bahamas quite a workout today. The question is, how much impact will there be on Florida? Or will we be lucky enough and just see it scoot up the uh, east coast of of the United States? Uh, In Florida, in Daytona Beach... Uh, Joining us right now on the line is Global News Washington Bureau Chief Jackson Prosco in the trenches on Daytona Beach. Jackson, good afternoon. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Sterling. So you're in Daytona. Uh, Tell us about the weather where you are and what you've been told to expect.
5: Yeah, so right now it's absolutely a beautiful day, about 30 degrees, nice and humid, nice and sunny. Uh, That said, we know what to expect because up until this morning, we were actually staying in Cocoa Beach near Cape Canaveral, except there's an evacuation order in place that has now come into effect there. It's mandatory, effective tomorrow morning. The hotels are all shutting down, and we were told to leave. So the bottom line is people here are not quite sure what's going to happen next, but they're preparing us for the worst-case scenario,
1: which is some sort of direct strike. So how far far south of where you are now is Cocoa Beach, an area that has been told to have an evacuation uh, alert tomorrow morning? How far north of that are you now?
5: Yeah, we're only about an hour north. Uh, Keep in mind that Cocoa Beach and Cape Canaveral, they're they're barrier islands, right? They're they're right out there in the Atlantic. And So I think there's a bit of concern that uh, as tourist hotspots, the sooner you can tell people to leave, the better it is for everybody.
1: And what sort of cooperation are you seeing? You know, we see these a uh, year after year. I mean, this is an annual event. It's hurricane season for crying out loud, Jackson, and we see varying degrees of urgency in terms of local reaction. What are you seeing?
5: Yeah, I mean, I think things are calm. They're actually abnormally quiet for a Labor Day weekend in Florida because most tourists had enough advance notice that they simply changed their plans and decided to stay away. So uh, that's been beneficial. Uh, But what we've seen on the local side is a run on gas and supplies. As soon as we landed last night and went to a grocery store to stock up for ourselves, uh, the the shelves of canned goods and of bread and of water are completely empty. Uh, About 50% of the gas stations in this part of Florida have run completely dry, and they're, Mm -hmm. they're trying to move fuel in under police escort just to try and replenish supplies. So it's a strange situation that there is so much advance notice, and the storm is slowing down, which means there's even more notice
0: at this point.
1: So what does that mean, though, uh, in terms of impact? If the storm is slowing down, presumably somewhere between the Bahamas and the United States, the Florida Keys, is that, is that good news then, Jackson?
5: Well, the the real good news is the forecast seems to be suggesting the track is actually going to trend more to the east. In other words, the storm could actually stay out over the Atlantic. Uh, about, um, you know, a, a good chunk of Florida is still in that cone of uncertainty, and we don't know where the storm is going to end up, and that's mm-hmm. the concern here. And so uh, even though the, the sort of models of the forecast track are trending to keep it offshore or hugging the shoreline, they're certainly encouraging people to prepare as though this could be a direct strike because – Again, we're still talking into next Tuesday and Wednesday when this
1: arrives. Lots of
5: time for things to change.
1: So, the, uh, the, if anything, the slow nature of the storm, the slowing down of the storm, is in fact a good thing. We saw the governor of Florida yesterday, Jackson, advising people that this is something that needs to be taken seriously and and treated uh, as as an urgent matter. And yet, uh, there seems to be no immediate concern in that We literally the weather itself, bought us another 24 hours to get organized and get out in some cases right
5: exactly i think what you're seeing now is just preparation for the fact that there's so much uncertainty so you've got states of emergency in florida now up into georgia and south carolina because carolinas have come into play here as the as the track has started to shift but the bottom line is there is a luxury here of having lots of time to prepare this isn't uh you know one day out this is still three and four and five
1: days out for a lot of people what can you tell us about the Bahamas, which apparently is getting a bit of a pounding today, Jackson?
5: Yeah, and that's where the slowing down of the system is really going to be problematic and dangerous because it's going to linger with those Category 4, almost Category 5 winds and torrential, epic amounts of rain for up to 36 hours. It's hard to see how that's not going to be a completely devastating event. Uh, they told people to get the high ground, but there's not a lot of high ground to get to there.
1: Okay. And the other thing I wanted to ask you about, you're a Canadian, even though you're based in Washington these days, and you know from years of experience that the end result of a lot of these hurricanes and seasonal storms are some pretty nasty bits of weather in Atlantic Canada as the storm essentially works its way up the coast and out over open water. Uh, Have uh, our weather people been advised by NOAA or any other American group to uh, have a heads up this is going to happen again this time yet?
5: Yeah, I mean, the Canadian Hurricane Center, well, you have to know, is going to be tracking this very closely. There are Canadian computer models just like the European and American ones you hear about all the time. Sure. But the bottom line is the the track and the speed here puts any Canadian impact sort of so far out into the future that it's hard to make a reasonable guess as to what's going to happen. Uh, We're having a hard enough time pinning down what's going to happen by uh, midweek, this week to come.
1: Interesting. So uh, the latest predictions you're hearing for landfall for Hurricane uh, Dorian is likely to be what, Sunday night, Monday morning then, Jackson?
5: More like Monday night into Tuesday, perhaps even into Wednesday and Thursday, depending on where you're talking about. And that's sort of the unknown part here is is, is, if they're going to make a strike further down south or central in Florida, then that would be more into the Monday-Tuesday range. If it just hugs the coast and moves up maybe into the Carolinas, uh, you could be talking about a Thursday arrival uh, in somewhere like uh, Charleston or Savannah, if that's where it trends. And right now it's just sort of
1: hugging the coast all the way along. Interesting stuff. Thanks for this. I appreciate your colorful coverage. It, it, it is a seasonal thing, Jackson. That's that's the part about it that we we so so frequently forget. It's it's the beginning of hurricane season. And are they telling you anything about 2019 as a season in terms of uh, a, a particularly bad year or typical? What are you hearing?
5: Yeah, I mean, the the projections are a more active season. It was quiet for a very long time. We're only in the Ds right now, as you Mm -hmm. can tell. Uh, But as the forecaster said earlier this week, the Atlantic has just woken up and there's two or three more things coming down the pipe that are worth watching in the next few
1: weeks. Jackson, thanks for this. We appreciate it very much. And stay safe for crying out loud, will you please? My pleasure. There you go. There's Jackson Prosco, Global News Washington Bureau Chief, joining us from Daytona Beach, Florida this afternoon, where it appears a a natural reprieve is occurring. The weather is, uh, is abating to the extent that the landfall expected is now going to be be in the early stages of next week labor day weekend won't be as catastrophic as some floridians might have imagined joining us from ottawa is the federal director of the canadian taxpayers federation aaron woodrick is on the line to talk about well sick days at the provincial federal and private sector level aaron good afternoon thanks for joining us on labor day weekend
5: yeah, thanks for having me, Sterling.
1: You're welcome. So this is a new report out from the Taxpayers Federation. How recent?
5: Uh, we just put it out yesterday. It's actually a pretty straightforward report. We do this around Labor Day every year, Sterling. We take a look at some of the, some of the different uh, benefits, statistics, between the private and public sector. This year we're focusing on sick days. So all we really did was take Statistics Canada data uh, right. and sort of compare the number of sick days that are taken by government Uh, versus in the private sector. And what we found was a pretty consistent pattern across the board uh, that uh, government workers are sick a lot more often, depending on what part of the country you're in, uh, than people in the private sector. So,
1: uh, and I noticed it's quite an extensive report, and if anyone wants to, to check it out, it's at taxpayer.com, and you break down uh, provincial, I'm looking at Ontario, Quebec, New Brunswick, etc. cetera, uh, you break down each province at the provincial level, and then you also do Canada as a, as a unit. Is there a difference between the sort of national average of federal employees, Aaron, versus provincial employees or is it approximately the same across the board
5: yeah there's quite a variation sterling so at the federal level for example the average federal government employee takes about 12 and a half sick days a year in the private sector it's just under seven days so that's a, about five day gap um, i mean alberta it's quite huge it's about 14 days in government uh, and only 5.7 days in the uh, private sector so uh, you know it varies a bit depending on the province but there's quite a big gap and you know when you think about the number of employees for example, federally, we have about a quarter of a million people working for the federal government. Right. Uh, for that five-day gap per year, that's 1.3 million days lost sickness. That's the equivalent of 5,000 federal employees calling in sick every single workday. So that's a lot of uh, that's a lot of work not being done, and of course, taxpayers are on the hook for it. And I think the obvious question, Sterling, is if there is something going on here where uh, government workers are getting more sick than people in the private sector. It seems to me that might be something we want to look into.
1: Well, I would think so, too. And and I wonder, though, just off the top of your head, and you've done some deep dives into stats can numbers out of all of this, but uh, a, a, as patterns begin to emerge, Aaron, and your research team started putting one and one together, how much of this do you think or were you able to define is specifically related to a sense of entitlement?
5: Look, it's tough to say, but I can tell you we have done other work on this, and it has shown some, some very interesting patterns. Uh, for example, we looked in Saskatchewan a couple of years ago. We were able to get the specific date that people called it sick, and lo and behold, one of the top few days was the day after the Grey Cup parade uh-huh. for the Rough Riders, Saskatchewan. We also found in Nova Scotia the day after a Olympic Team Canada won an Olympic uh, Games hockey game. Uh, sickness was sick days were through the roof in the uh, in the public sector. And finally, in Quebec, just uh, just last year, we did a little look at the days of the week, and surprisingly, Sterling Mondays and Fridays, uh, bureaucrats were getting struck by illness disproportionately on Monday and Friday rather than in the middle of the week. So, you know, I uh, I don't want to cast dispersions here, but there seem to be some patterns that you know the the uh, correlation between major sporting events and days close to the weekend, uh, bureaucrats seem to be getting a lot thicker on those days than, than other days.
1: Aaron, talk to us about the arrangements these people are working under. Obviously, there are many, in in most cases, not all, but many federal employees are indeed members of uh, various unions and so on. So is the language regarding uh, numbers of sick days uh, that are uh, available to any working individual dramatically different in terms of contract language from one in the private sector?
5: Yeah, in a lot of cases, the the sick day allotment in in government is a lot more generous. And not only is it more generous, but in a lot of cases, they're allowed to bank them, they're allowed Mm -hmm. to roll them over. In some cases, they're allowed to cash them out. Um, And look, I'm not suggesting for a minute that uh, people in government are necessarily worse people than people in the private sector, but people respond to incentives. And if you are given something that you can easily abuse, uh, I think that there's a higher chance that you're going to abuse it. And remember... Sick days are for recovering from sickness. They should not be treated as extra vacation days. Taxpayers have to pay for this work that's not being done. And so I think if there is a problem here, it's incumbent on governments to look into it.
1: Well, of course, you know a lot of day, a lot of those days get and the old uh, the old cliche is not particularly feeling ill, but it's time for a mental health day. And uh, that that was the old justification for just taking a day off because well it's time.
5: Well, look, yeah, and no one is saying for a minute, people are saying, oh, what do you want people to come in and work sick? Nobody is saying you should come in to work sick. But let's be mm-hmm. clear that sick days are for when you're sick. They are not to be treated as extra vacation days that you can dip into. And if there there is an abuse, and it seems to me there is a very consistent pattern here across the country um, between the government and private sector, uh, that is something that government should look into because it costs all of us money uh, when, the war, when they're being paid to do a job they're not
1: doing. Yeah. Aaron, uh, quickly with this banked business, if, if a worker has it in his or her contract or arrangement with the employer, the people of, of the country or the province, if they have contract language that says you can, you're entitled to X number of sick days per year and those that you don't use, you can bank and cash your chips in uh, when you retire or leave the organization. Do people under those arrangements tend to have fewer, sick days because after all they're banking them for the big cash out down the road
5: yeah that, it's not clear from the statistics we can't we can't really glean that from the physics sterling but it is interesting because when you think about it if the point of the banking is is to give an incentive you may actually end up doing the reverse of of encouraging people to take time off when they're sick they may be coming into work when they shouldn't just so they can save up the day to, to cash out on it later, which is the opposite
1: of. And so, as these patterns begin to emerge, it, you were saying that uh, I'm just I'm looking at this. I'm, I'm flipping back and forth down this long list of the Canadian provinces, and and your assessment, Aaron, is that of of the ten provinces and three territories, Alberta government employees uh, seem to take the most sick days per year.
5: That's correct. Not only the most, they also have the widest gap between. They take off. They take 153 percent. Uh, of the sick days that people in the private sector in Alberta take. So Alberta uh, definitely is the outlier.
1: Which province or which group of provincial employees or territorial employees takes the fewest number of sick days per year?
5: The winner there would be New Brunswick. They take uh, only 7.6, and it's only about 25% more than in the private sector.
1: And according to the information here, uh, in 2018, government employees in Canada were absent 77% more than private sector employees due to illness or disability. That's a significant gap, and you'll go on to say that uh, sick days taken by government employees, the number has increased every year for the past five years. It has in the private sector as well, but not to the same degree explain the difference in terms of increase over the last 5 years and then we'll take some calls
5: yeah look it's uh, it has risen uh, not dramatically but we see a, a continuous uh, pattern here and the same same in the private sector but again dramatically less so this gap remains uh you know people often debate about you know whether people uh, you know are people coming into work sick or not but the fact remains that uh, there is clearly less common in the private sector for people to take sick days Uh, We don't exactly know why, but we do know that that pattern is consistent across the country, uh, no matter where you're talking about, federal or the provincial level.
1: And and the pattern, as you say, you've been tracking it now for a long time, and there's no improvement. In fact, it, it just seems to be expanding, if anything.
5: That's right. Some provinces have bounced up and down, but the gap is persistent, and in most places it has widened.
1: All right, let's include some taxpayers in this conversation, Aaron, as we go to Mississauga first and start off with Bobby on the line. You're paying for all this, Bobby. What do you think of it?
0: Well, yeah, we are. But uh, first of all, I respect
2: you uh, totally, Sterling. Uh, I'm glad to hear you on the air. Thank you, sir. Uh, But I have a few questions. Go ahead. First of all, the guy that's doing this
4: doesn't trust government statistics. So how do I know I can trust private industry stats, too?
1: My, okay, Aaron, it wasn't a was it a case of not trusting StatsCan statistics? I didn't hear you say that. I heard you say you used uh, a lot of StatsCan data. In fact, it was, this was compiled basically almost exclusively on StatsCan data. Correct?
5: Yeah, it's entirely Stats StatsCan data. I uh, I got to disagree with the caller. I, it's not that we don't trust StatsCan statistics. You know, we're we're a group that criticizes government waste. It doesn't mean that we have an issue with the agency that's Collecting the stats, and I would say if they, if they're bad for government, then they're also bad for the private sector. I don't know why they'd be more reliable for one uh, one side but not the other.
1: So it's not a trust issue, Bobby. What else is on your mind?
5: Why would private sector be more reliable? Would they be more reliable? Yeah. Why wouldn't they? They're private. They're private. Well, it's, uh, you'd have to ask the folks at Statistics Canada. They're the ones collecting the data. They, they feel comfortable enough to publish it for people like us to use. So, uh, you know, I, I, I trust Stats Canada, and I believe they were going to stand behind their numbers. So if you're not uh, trusting the numbers, they're the ones you'd have to uh, dig it up
1: with. Bobby, all we can do as citizens and groups who use the data provided to us by the government is hope that the government's accuracy quotient is very, very high. Uh, the Taxpayers Federation rely on Statistics Canada for impartial data data. They just want numbers from wherever the sources gathered by StatsCan. And and I, I know what you're saying. In the private sector, they may fudge the numbers. But That's Aaron, right. and thanks for your call, Bobby. That's I appreciate what? it. Uh, but, but Aaron, uh, how, how suspicious are you of the private sector numbers being off kilter?
5: I would say this. If Statistics Canada did not feel comfortable with the integrity of the numbers, they wouldn't release them. I mean, StatsCan is our is our national statistical agency. The government bases a lot of policy decisions yeah. on StatsCan. So yeah. I, I would find it hard to believe that if they felt that the numbers were really bad, that they would actually
1: put them out at all. Okay, fair enough. Uh, again, Bobby, just being suspicious of the source. And some people just flat out don't trust government on even a good day, <laughs> regardless of which agency you're talking about. We are in Toronto next with Michael on the line. Hello, Michael.
6: Okay, hi, Sterling. It's good to hear your voice again. Thank on you. national radio. Uh, you know what I was going to say? I think uh, the... Uh, banked sick days, they become a bit of a misnomer. And in the sense that I've seen a lot of people, what they will do, they will bank them until they're very close to their retirement. And then they've got like three months or six months or nine months worth of unused sick days right. that basically they get to take an earlier retirement. that exactly. way. And so it's not a sick day anymore. It basically has become an extra vacation day. So what I would like to do is that the sick days, you have a limit, you know, say if it's nine or ten a year, you've gotta use them up within that calendar year and not be able to hold them over just because suddenly at the very end it's not what it's meant for and and it's sort of going against the very spirit of having a sick day.
1: Now you realize of course you're making an enormous amount of sense here Michael and that may not resonate well with the government.
6: Oh absolutely I'm I'm aware of that and and, uh, I think I would probably get the ire of the unions and unionized workers because suddenly for me to mention that suddenly I, I would be considered attacking them and attacking you know their hard fought Uh, gains. But at the same time, too, I think that there should also be accuracy in the way of how they actually label uh, these things.
1: Uh, Good point, Michael. Thanks very much for your call to you, Aaron. What about that changing, renegotiating the language in some of these uh, government to union contracts that forbid the banking of sick days and say, look, as is the case in the private sector, basically the old use them or lose them approach?
5: Yeah, I think that's the way to go. And I think, look, I don't begrudge the unions looking out for their members, but let's remember the unions are not looking out for the rest of us. Uh, They're not concerned about the cost of taxpayers. They're only concerned about the deal that their members get. So I think that always needs to be, uh, you know, put up front. Uh, You you know, he also mentions the the idea of the banking. Uh, The argument often has been, Sterling, that we need to bank them because, you know, maybe once in a lifetime you'll be struck by something debilitating that will take weeks or months. So Mm -hmm. the bank is supposed to be for that. You know, the, the Harper government uh, before 2015, they tried to address this by they were going to get rid of the banking sick days, but instead they were going to trade it for essentially a short-term disability plan, which I think addresses that concern so that there is provision if you genuinely get a, an illness that sees you have to be off work for weeks or even a couple of months, that that would be dealt with with this plan rather than this banking up where, as, as Michael had mentioned, you end up having lots of bureaucrats who are not sick and don't use their allotment and then just cash it out for three or six months or what have you of extra pay.
1: You know, uh, Aaron, we're almost out of time. And, and I'm just I'm curious about the current support of the federal government by the union representing enormous amounts of federal government employees, Unifor. Uh, there are being uh, members of being appointed to boards and, and advisory committees and all the rest of it on various levels of government activity. Gone are the NDP owning all the union votes days and quite some time ago now. Um, that, would, that would indicate a being in bed kind of arrangement that's going to make any practical renegotiations of any deal almost impossible that's my take what about you
5: yeah look uh, again i don't begrudge unions looking out for their members but we should not be fooled they are not looking out for the rest of us and when they get down to the negotiating table if it got if in bed with the government it's sort of like having one and a half people on one side and you know half a negotiator on the other side that that can often be very expensive to taxes
1: to the phones to toronto again brian uh, welcome aboard what do you think about this
0: Hi. You know, uh, in the jobs I had, servicing business machines and computer systems, I've been in every government facility there is, federal, provincial, Mm -hmm. municipal, as well as the private sector. And the atmosphere in government facilities is totally different in the private sector. I think one of the worst mistakes he ever made was allowing government workers to unionize. They don't need a union, you only got one employer, your job's not going to China. And I hear about how it's a very stressful job. Well, the only thing I can see that's stressful is because as far as I'm concerned, Most people in government do not work hard. So that makes for a very long day, day after day, week after week, month after month, decade after decade. That's the stressful part. And yeah, whatever they're entitled to, they're definitely going to take.
1: Thank you. No, got it loud and clear. Uh, Aaron, not a fan. You could say in a word or two. A private sector guy contracting to government workplaces, uh, it's a different, uh, it's a different environment. I mean, I don't know that many of many of us listening uh, would disagree with the fact that it's a different type of workplace altogether, isn't it?
5: It is. And look again. It, it... Government unions are going to look out for their workers. They have a pretty good deal. I think what's important, though, uh, to remind those unions and, and government workers that the rest of us don't enjoy a lot of the perks they get, whether it's defined benefit pensions, whether it's pay premiums, whether it's job security, those things do not exist in most parts of the private sector. And I think we right. often have to remind government that it is it is people in the private sector that are paying for government salaries, and they should they should bear that in mind.
1: Interesting stuff. Aaron Woodrick, I appreciate the Labor Day reality check. You do it well, and you do it every year. So let's make a date for next year right now and have a terrific long weekend. Same to you, Sterling. Aaron Woodrick is the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Lots more about this and the numbers. If you want to see the numbers, vary the- it's all a- nicely packaged up in this latest report at taxpayer.com. Dan Kelly is the president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business and joins us to talk a little bit more about this. Mr. Kelly, Dan, thank you for being with us today. Happy to be with you. Seventy-seven percent of small businesses, Dan, say payroll taxes are holding them back. They can't grow the businesses because they're paying too much in payroll taxes. What are we talking about? Uh, Define payroll taxes for people who aren't involved in small business.
5: Yeah, well, it, it's an important discussion because, of course, it isn't just business owners that pay payroll taxes. These are percentages that come off the top on on, on the payroll. Uh, it is also employees. Sure. The big ones, the big ones, and the ones that employees would know about, of course, are the Canada Pension Plan premiums that that come off the top on our checks uh, every month or every couple of weeks. Of course, employment insurance premiums, another big one for a lot of uh, for a lot of employees. Even higher rates for employers—they pay about uh, about 40 percent more than employees do in in EI rates, uh, and then a workers' compensation premiums. Those are 100 percent paid by the employer. Employees don't kick into the system, so we have that. Now, about. is that is that only? I'm sorry, Dan. was to... also maintain their own. There's a whole bunch of separate payroll taxes that provinces, in fact, add on the top.
1: Okay, that's why I was going to ask you, because the workers' compensation automatic payroll deduction in Ontario, is that unique to Ontario, Dan, or do other provinces have similar deductions for their workers' compensation programs?
5: Yeah, every province has a workers' compensation board, uh, including the territories, and and, uh, all of that is 100% paid by the employer. Employees get that protection, of course, if they're injured on the job their accidents are paid for their 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 income or, or cost to get them back on their feet that's borne by the workers compensation system but in fact it's employers that pay 100 percent of the cost of that mandated by government and those rates vary by province to province other provinces though especially Quebec uh, add a separate payroll tax to pay for health care or yes. education or other services
1: BC so there's does a whole too a
5: bunch of them that that employers have to pay
1: Right. So, uh, ultimately, then, uh, this new report is called Taxing Payroll, a Barrier to Business Growth and Competitiveness. Uh, 77, three out of every four uh, small business people in the country say, I can't grow my business beyond where it is right now. The tax burden is simply too onerous. So, what sort of remedy are we looking for here, Dan? Just a a lightening of the load across the board, or is there a specific payroll tax that's most egregious?
5: You know, a couple of things. On the provincial side, there are provincial separate payroll taxes, and we're calling on provinces that maintain them. Newfoundland, Labrador, Manitoba, British Columbia just implemented a new one, Quebec, Ontario. We want those ones phased out altogether. So we don't think that there's any reason why employers should be singled out uh, for an extra chunk of revenue on top of the corporate income tax and the 100 other taxes that they pay. Right. On workers' compensation rates, we're trying to get provinces to keep them down. Our biggest recommendations, though, are around Canada pension plan premiums right now. And, in fact, we're just trying to hold the line on that front because those are going up. In fact, they're going up by 20% over the next six years. Uh, Every single Canadian, every single working Canadian will see their paycheck go down on January 1st, 2020, 2021, 2022, and so on. Six straight years of Canada pension plan premium increases... Uh, and that's the big one. 20% hike, we're worried about the impact that that's going to have on jobs. And we're calling on the feds and provinces together uh, to, to drop that increase. In fact, to, to, to freeze it all together.
1: Right. Now, Dan, we have a, an election coming up. Uh, the announcement we've, we have found out th- th- this hour may, may be happening in the next day or two. Either way, we've got a government that's running around uh, dropping uh, big, big checks all over the country. They love to spend, uh, and we love it when they, they buy us goodies, even if it's with borrowed money because we're broke. Nonetheless, uh, these, th- this is a tax and spend government, a very tax and spend government. So, what sort of appetite, if any, do you sense going into this election? campaign for any reduction in tax income to this government
5: well we're we're very worried about that in fact it's the reason why we put an election platform uh, small business platform together and are meeting with party leaders across the political spectrum uh, i met jack jack in, in burnaby a couple a couple weeks ago to ask for his help on the on these very fronts meeting with andrew Shearer later this week mm-hmm. but we're calling on the current government all parties to hold the line on payroll taxes. Not super optimistic, though, yeah. because you're absolutely right. There are a lot of spending commitments. The big one, of course, uh, PharmaCare programs that parties are talking about. Small businesses are worried that that's going to end up with a new payroll tax to pay for PharmaCare across the country. Good idea. But if that if that bill gets passed on to small businesses across the country who are already buckling under the weight of the tax burden,
1: that's a big worry. So uh, the notion that tax relief could become part of the election campaign by some party is that is that out of the question? Might the conservatives pick up on this, or the, is everyone sort of committed to maintaining the current levels?
5: We we're, we're, we don't know. Uh, the platforms haven't been released by all the parties. I would sure, yeah. say that I, I I wouldn't be gambling that <laughs> my uh, my son's education fund that we're going to be seeing. Parties commit to giant increase, uh, giant cuts in payroll taxes, uh, but of course we have provincial elections going on. One, of course, in Manitoba right now, mm-hmm, yeah. uh, and we're we're calling on the parties there to to look at the payroll tax burden on on small and medium-sized firms. So it isn't just the federal responsibility; it's also provincial governments that that, that have their hand pretty hard on the lever, increasing payroll taxes across the country. There have been some relief. Uh, There there, there have been some measures to try to reduce the burden or increase the threshold, meaning that the the burden is lifted from more smaller firms. Uh, But there are ways to do this without necessarily causing big cuts in government funding. That's the kind of uh, that's kind of advice we're giving governments right now.
1: All right. Listen, I'm fresh out of time and I thank you for yours. Where can folks go listening to this right now and dive more into the numbers that you've produced in this report, Dan?
5: We've got uh, uh, our studies on the press releases under uh, at the CFIB website, cfib.ca.
1: All right, cfib.ca, the president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, Dan Kelly, joining us this afternoon. Thanks, Dan, appreciate it. Good to talk to you. Anytime at all. All right, there's uh, Dan Kelly joining us from Chicago this weekend.